So yeah, people that grew up here in South Florida, you know, especially from Palm Beach to Miami, and you're in the fishing world your whole life, you just kind of take it for granted, you know, and you don't realize that there's so many people out there, the rest of the world are looking in and wish that they knew the things that we take for granted. Yeah, yeah. And um, the optics have changed a lot. It's yeah, things are changing. Things are changing fast. But, you know, I grew up down here on, on Nussles Boulevard, and my dad was big into the offshore scene. And um, from the time I could talk and walk, you know, fishing was just part of, part of life. But um, having you sitting in my living room today is kind of neat because... I was just a kid, I mean, literally, on my skateboard, rowing up and down A1A, and I knew Steve Kantner. I knew who Steve Kantner was, and I knew that, you know, that you fished. Very, and I, very flattered to hear that. Dude, <laughs> all of us kids knew who Steve Kantner was. I mean, you know, and, and, and you grow up, and you realize that um, that guy that was fishing around the canals and stuff, and you'd see on the beach, is a real predominant voice in the sport fishing world and there's so many of us down here that just kind of take that for granted you know like if you're from new jersey or atlantic city yeah you know you're into fishing and there's a coast there or whatever but it's not 24 7 365 days a year you got jersey shore and you got dion (laughs) (laughs) yeah but um guys this is a steve Kantner. Famous fisherman here in Fort Lauderdale, um, esteemed author, right, a, a number of books, and um, we're real excited to have him today on the Real Guy Podcast. Steve, thanks for coming over. Thanks for coming in. Real happy to be here. Very, <laughs> very, very proud to be here. Well, you know, it's um, it, it's good to have you. I, I've always considered you um, somebody that I would not only look up to, because you know you're older and stuff like that but you've always fished like never not yeah. fished so like there's certain people that you put on your pendulum and you say okay what's Cantner <laughs> doing right now oh Cantner's up there you know hope sound getting pompanos and stuff right now and then you go to the next guy okay what's john tedder doing right now oh tedder's on a dock and you know he's doing some snook fishing late at night and then you check in with tom green or maybe copeland or you know like you were talking about frank johnson yeah or and, you know, you had your people that you you always wanted to know what they were doing because they were what you would want to see. You wanted them to be your peer. Yeah. Something else, too. Many of us, particularly when fishing started to get some legs, uh, and people like myself that didn't have a lot of seed cash to get started, we had to make a living doing something that somebody else wasn't doing, and that's where this land captain thing came for me. I became intrinsically interested in fly fishing when I was in my late teens, when I was in the Army. And where I was, we didn't have an opportunity. I mean, it wasn't like Montana or whatever, but uh, uh, I knew that I could bring some of this stuff down home if I understood, if I finally, if I learned the physical moves involved, and I could, you know, parlay it into the kind of fishing we have here. And I remember many times, I remember wading out, remember the Coast Guard Flats, I'm sure you'd, more than anybody. Yeah. I remember wading out waist deep and throwing and actually, during the daytime, hooking tarpon and, and fishing, shooting headlines and catching little baby kingfish when we used to be able to sneak in a port. Right. Yeah, I mean, all, I mean, lots of them. And all sorts of stuff we caught. And of course, in the back canals and whatever. And I know your friend O'Gorman, and he's got some video that's, I didn't know this stuff lived here. I'd be afraid to fall in one of these canals. (laughs) But, yeah, we did it, and we had fun with it. And there wasn't – I was out here when they dug Alligator Alley, and we saw it as a kind of a cool place to go. And we'd go out with our dates in college. We'd drink beers and cook hot dogs. But we never had an idea at the time the vastness of this industry and how it would grow, nor the – can I call it the echo industry that has grown around it? Yeah, you can call it that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, I even have, like, ecologically sensibly clo- sensible clothes on. <laughs> it's the only two pairs I have. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, fi- there's like a fishing uniform now. Yeah, yeah, you got to have it. Right. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The um, I was uh, trying to explain to my kid um, how the IGFA used to be. 
when it was just a little tiny 30 by 30 cubicle down on A1A in Los Olas. And there was a little old lady that worked in there. And then you could walk in there and go through the files and look at people's world records. And maybe they had a photo of something, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, the kid today, she thinks of the IGFA like this huge museum with all these, you know, famous people in it. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, here's the bad news. It's like the Hotel California. <laughs> it's there. Nobody can get in. You can get out once you're in there, but nobody can get in there. <laughs> but it's just, you know, it's just crazy how... You know, what used to be just um, just a little room of files turns into this huge IGFA world of people now and blown way out of, in my, in my opinion, blown way out of proportion. <laughs> and um, people from the outside looking in just think it's like bigger than life. And really the fundamentals of the IGFA is no different today than it was when that little cubicle was down there. Tough. They just promoted as being so grandiose. Remember when they used to be up on Federal Highway in Pompano? Now that I don't remember. Okay, it was up about McNabb Road or whatever. I used to work for a life insurance company that was Life of Virginia. I worked for them for years, and it was up there. And we used to go over there after work, and you could sign in, and they'd sign you stuff. They'd give you a, a, a cassette, or it wasn't a cassette then, a movie, and you'd play it, and you'd write on there, Zane Gray fishes for dot, 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 the Tahitian silver marlin. And you'd watch it for a while, and you'd just chronicle, you know, a few remarks <laughs> and stuff. But I remember doing that. And I remember, you know, the deal with Harry, E.K. Harry was the president and started the library. Now, was the thing in Pompano after A1A or before? After. Okay, okay, because I, I didn't know what happened to it after it left. I remember going down there with Scott Boyd and having lunch or breakfast with Peter Godby. And he had just loaned... He had a 16-0 pen, and this is before. This is when you could use cow's blood for chum and everything else. <laughs> right. And they caught the, the, the guy caught the 2,500 or 2,600-pound white shark. These guys, these Australian guys, I mean, the little guy, they're born. They have like 18-inch arms, and they get bigger <laughs> as they get older. And they have barber chairs on these boats with footrests. They go out there, and they'll have a whole dead steer step. And these things, they'll pick the one they want. These things are 18 feet long and stuff. But uh, he, we were actually having breakfast with Godby, who wrote an excellent book on Pacific fishing. Boyd and I, while Clive Green was the guy's name, was cranking this thing in out there in the Bay of Islands, wherever he was. I think it was Bay of Islands. Okay. <laughs> the, um, the, um, the whole thing, you know, started, I guess... Um, with the IGFA having those records and stuff in their files. And then... Um, yeah, 1939 is when they really cranked it. Yeah, and then I guess it's just, you know, um, it's been a storyline. You know, it's been a storyline ever since. And then today, I don't know, like, I don't pay attention to it like I used to. You know, like, I there was times when, you, you know, I was like, man, you know, that guy did this and that guy did that. And, man, if I could... You know, if I could do what he did. They no. were heroes. They right. were heroes. They were heroes, there was exactly. guys like Lerner and these guys. This, that one, they have a this young lady. Her name is Chizzy, what was her, Farrington. She was 19 years old. Real good-looking girl. Married somebody from, uh, you know, Upper Crust Manhattan or whatever. <laughs> and she's over there on her, on her grand tour after she graduated college. She's over there in France. She gets polio. Her arm gets boogered her knee gets boogered here's this beautiful little chick that writes for harper's and vogue and everybody else and she's there with her husband up there in nova scotia cranking in these 900 pound tunas right. i mean legit i mean those guys there was no two ways of doing it or let the little girl dance stuff or whatever or back <laughs> down on it you know? i mean they <laughs> right, right i mean back i mean some of these women from back in the old days Man, they ate their young. I mean, they were real. No, they were real sportsmen. They were real gamers. And let, let's bring that up. I mean, uh, St Steve, Steve's written multiple books over the years, but his latest book are the 50 uh, Women Who Fish. And it's a, it's a perfect timing, in my opinion, for this book because, um, in my opinion, social media has uh, skewed, to, oh, be, yeah. to be polite, a lot of, especially the younger generation's perception on women who fish because these kids they see what's on social media yeah 
and on social media yeah there's some of the women that actually you know fish that are on there but they don't get the millions of views or the hundreds of thousands of views that the g-stringers get right and it drives me crazy to think that my 13 year old kid would look at these g-string anglers and think wow these are the girls of fishing. That's what it takes. Because it's not. Everybody wants to be, uh, I want likes, give me, I want now, I want it all, like, like, yeah. Now, was any of that going through your mind when... when? Oh, oh, you bet. I laid this thing out like a, like a battle plan ahead okay. of time. And I very closely checked with some reliable sources to make sure... Uh, that's not to say this. This is to tell you the truth. The book is kind of a cross between field and stream, and uh, what's that one that uh, the? Hmm. I'm trying to think of the the one where you know there's a lot of tattletale stuff in there because a lot of these girls come out and they do tell some stuff. I mean, famous ladies, Joan Wolf, the first lady of modern fly fishing. She's right. been married, I don't know, four times. Said I've, I've told Vokey, she said, you know, I made some mistakes that I'm not proud of. I know the woman, and I talked to her too, and I guess I didn't listen to the thing. But Vokey got a little chirpy with her and stuff, and uh, told her she said, you know, you're really not the person to talk about this. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Vokey has a has a great selection of podcasts, but anyway, but some of these girls, and I mean, Deborah Dunaway, uh, she chased that. She wouldn't mind me saying it. I mean, she told me I've been broke when I met her. She was just brokenhearted. She went down with a date from Dallas to go. Uh, they were going to go diving down in the Virgin Islands, and they went aboard this guy's boat. Jerry Dunaway's got more money than <laughs> right. God, you know, and everything else. And um, her date started talking to Dunaway's sort of squeeze or whatever, and Dunaway was married, and. She ended up talking to Dunaway half the night, and the other two, they were going to go diving the next day. The two of them were too green to go to go diving. So Dunaway just sat up there, and they went bebopping around and stuff and trolling some skip baits, and I believe she caught a sailfish or whatever, and she caught one in a, I think in Mazatlan or something years before. So it was, it was different. Here we're using light lines and stuff. And she said, girls today wouldn't like me saying this, but I got the first time I got a look at that man, I made up my mind I was going to have them. <laughs> it took her thir it took her 30 years. And she got them though. <laughs> and you know in the end when he finally passed, he took care of his kids, her kids, their ki whatever. It's he was, it was a, a straight up guy. A nice pleasant ending. Yeah, I mean it's got to be. Hey, love is bumpy. I mean love hurts. It does. It does. Now, now you reached out and did 50. Oh. Well, actually, sixty. I, I interviewed ten dead of the dead, but they are not as contentious. I mean, yeah, that takes a lot of work because it'd be hard for me to sit down and write fifty men anglers that I would actually write. Oh, uh, listen, something I had about. to renew my testosterone prescription when I did this. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, it was a lot of energy. Yeah, it's and the other thing is, there a lot of them like to be editors, and there's some things you're good at. There's some things I'm good at. I don't. I, I'm no Hemingway, but what I kept trying to do was get these ladies to answer questions, and I try to call them on the phone, and I try to get them to really um, keep going. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. I just I, I'm a dumbass. I didn't write, turn my phone off before we started the recording. But anyway, I would go and uh, I would really drill them. I'd say, "This isn't a Facebook post, babe. Come on." Right. I mean, if you, this is the way you feel about it, I want you to tell me how you feel about it. You let me write it. You just let me see the way you feel it. And sometimes it would be the very, very last question. One of these ladies, uh, young, she's not even 30 years old yet. She's got more plaudits. I mean, she's a, a guide. She's a this. She used to work. She's a captain with a, I don't know how many hundred ton master's license. And she actually worked. She's an animal trainer training whales and porpoises and otters and stuff to guard these deep water sub submarine bases. And I mean, I don't think they were teaching them how to be nice to f 
divers and stuff, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I know yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. They were real people doing real things. Real things. And and yeah, it wasn't a, a photo op. It wasn't, you know, something to gain popularity. They were living their life, and they were real fishing people. The real. one the one I know, the one where I got chased, Cocking and I were kidding about this yesterday, the one where the, the, the one that I got chased with the panther, she was asking me that story. She said, did you, I, she says, I've told that story 50 times. Did you ever see her? And I said, I just called her. <laughs> and this is Diana Rudolph, anyway, and Diana Rudolph ranks in my book. I, I've never seen a female fly cast that well in my life. Really? Really. She, I mean, it's really. Top I mean, of the top, huh? She can stand here in a wind and put a loop in a mouse's ear. Wow. At 80 yards out there. And, I mean, she's the the what do you call it? The cut line was like a predator, and boy, she was. And we were talking, and she, you can read it in the book. She comes out and says, you know, I've never had a psychiatric problem in my life. And she's hanging around with this guy for about 10 years, which as far as I'm concerned, I mean, that's, you know. You yeah, they might as well be hooked, right? Yeah. And we get, a, we get, I get pregnant. We have this kid. Within a day after I have the kid, I plunge into this incredible depression. I wanted this child. And I, the child is not natural, normal. Everything is good. And I spent a year on... I mean, just shovelfuls of psychiatric medication. It came out of absolutely nowhere. And my wife worked in the court uh, system and everything. She said, you know, that PSD or PPD, postpartum depression, that's a, that's a murder defense. And this girl had never told anybody. And so telling the story, this girl is really bouncy. And you say, man, when she comes out with this, think of the good that, that those other women who maybe feel strange feelings and stuff like that. Sure. There's another lady in here who uh, says the reason she guides is because she's a nut. She suffers from endogenous depression. But when she's up there, this is a different one from British Columbia. When she takes, when she's got a, a party and they're out, they're going down this river and throwing, you know, and she knows, you know, she's between the devil and deep blue sea. She doesn't have a chance to think about her broken love affairs or any of her other stuff. And it keeps her up to speed, and she loves the outdoors. She got hooked. Uh, this, this guy at worked. he said, when I graduated college, I worked at this lodge as a domestic. And this guy was working as a fishing guide. He said, let's go for a helicopter ride one day. And she said, that was it. He caught two of these bright spring steelheads, and I was never the same again. Right. That's um so the uh the amount of energy you put in that you haven't put that kind of energy in a book in a long time, huh? I try to put as much energy into everything I do as I can. As I get older and I guess as the time gets shorter, the time becomes more it it's it's more valuable. <laughs> well, I, I'm really glad you wrote the book because I think that um I think that there's a I think that there's a respect factor in fishing that is being lost and yeah. it's being lost quickly i mean when i grew up there was the older guys that fished and you respected those people right. whether you liked them or not was irrelevant no fishing you know? was always that way yeah whether you liked them or not was irrelevant but you knew that they were putting in a hundred percent you knew that they were putting in the effort whatever it took and then you knew that you might be able to learn something for them. Yeah, you or knew they, what size hook they used. Right. You knew that they could make you better. Right. And I don't, I don't know if the younger generation or even some of the older guys even realize, you know, just like other athletes, you can look at them, break them down, understand where they can help you, where they may be hurting you. But the respect factor... I don't think is there. I don't think it's there I anymore. I still lift weights at my condominium with my high school football coach. He's 90 years old now, <laughs> five days a week. He sees, he's stiffer now. I don't want to use the term, and I mean, I'm not much better. <laughs> but we're in there, and I mean, I'm talking serious full-body workouts and stuff like that. He played at one time when the NCAA rules were different. He, he was in, I think he was at University of Cincinnati or Ball State or one of them. He played, he coached one of the teams while he was, basketball, while he was playing professional baseball for the other. <laughs> and, 
and he's known. He's, the guy's name's Bill Ugly. He's the head of the whatever they call it over here for the Century Club at Lauderdale High School. I was gonna say, is that Ugly from Lauderdale High School? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Get out of here! You work out with Ugly? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you and I have buddies. I went. I two years. I went to Fort Lauderdale High School, and two years I went to St. Thomas Aquinas. But yeah. Ugly was still a coach when I was at Lauderdale High yeah, School. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's director. hilarious. Oh no, he's a doozy. And it finally, and boy, I'll tell you, I won't make any comments about political alignments, but let's say that <laughs> his is uh, his about like mine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's let's leave all that stuff yeah, out of this yeah. But um, I don't know if you guys know it or not, but um, Steve was um, an intricate part in winning a small battle in a huge war here in Fort Lauderdale. What was that, maybe three or four years ago? Yeah, it Five was, or six and that's when ago? I first really, I didn't get to say anything. You were signed up, but you you really mustered, you really rallied the troops. And what it was, this guy who's our mayor now, and this, this is my point of fact, <coughs> uh, he used to be the District 2 commissioner. I live in District 2 now. Right. But uh, a woman who was, I guess, one of his contributors or one of his whatever. Money people. People, yeah, uh, raised his got in a panties in a knot over kids fishing off the beach and stuff and they turned it into this turtle dragon uh leaving junk on the beach wire all this kind of stuff and best as we could figure all it was was a couple of guys a lot of times getting ready with business wear on to go to work walking the beach with a fly rod at six o'clock in the morning in the summertime when there was no surf and you know you're not exactly yelling to each other and she'd look out her window or whatever and harumph, you know, right. I don't yeah. like it. And she she brought these bunny huggers in there. I, re- I remember sitting there and these guys snarling and making up these stories. Let me let me let me summarize it because uh, we might be talking past some of the people in the audience. See, down here in Fort Lauderdale Beach, um, we have, you know, very nice place to go down and fish the beach. And people have been doing it forever. And um, I don't know, a few years ago the cops started coming down there and throwing people off the beach and, you know, kind of enforcing some laws that weren't actually there. And, um, next thing I hear through the grapevine, um, Steve and another, um, longtime Fort Lauderdale fisherman, Carl Ball found out that they were having this hearing about whether you were going to be able to fish on the beach or not. And at that time, our social media was absolutely blowing up. And I was like, this is an important topic that people, aren't going to hear about you filled the commission chambers i could have been pissed drunk and i couldn't have fallen i couldn't have found a place to hit the ground it was the neatest thing i ever saw in my life <laughs> so help me so 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 the so the hearing uh is going on in downtown fort lauderdale and our social media network jumps on the back of steve and carl ball and we rally the troops and we go downtown and we represent the land-based fishermen to make sure that we're going to be able to fish um, here in Fort Lauderdale. And um, we had the Sun Sentinel, and I used to write a blog for Andy Novak down at TMTNR, LMR. LMR. And that room, like I say, I mean, it was it was like it was there for Bundy's execution. I mean, it was really something. Now, I think we, we had a few hundred people show up Easy. To, to, um, to, to make sure that they would ban the fishing on the beach. And when they started that horse crap about the turtles and the monofilament on yeah, the, yeah. there was enough people there to that knew that that was bullshit. Right. That they actually laughed when the lady came out and gave her spiel about why fishermen were bad for the beach, and fishy it, boys, bad boy. <laughs> but you know, to this day, you know. It feels good when you win a battle like that. Yeah, it does. Because, you know, and it's the same thing. And if I can link it to one thing with the book. Listen, I'm not the Lily is greatest guy in the world. But one thing I did want to do with this book is I wanted to empower women. And the only backlash is now with this year, the woman and frankly, like this soccer contest and some of the aftermath from that and everything else. A lot of people are saying this Me Too stuff like, I wasn't, my dad didn't take me fishing. My husband wouldn't take me fishing. And, you know, babe, we didn't know. Right. You know, and we, we'd like you to go. 
Right. It wasn't like we were trying to keep anybody down. No, just, you look you look good. And if it's just and you're my wife or my squee or whatever, and we're going somewhere and I'm not we're not doing this like selfies town or whatever. I like this. Well, you know, it was it was it was masculinity. And you yeah. know, it's back then it was normal. Now it's demonized. That's right, it's toxic masculinity. <laughs> you know, every time you know what I do every night? I get myself a bottle of I call it two buck chuck. I get a bottle of the of, of inexpensive uh, Australian Chardonnay, and I get a cigar, a real, what do you call it, Havana hand rolled from this guy that that I know down in Miami. And I sit out there, and I might take two sips of the Chardonnay or or three or four, <laughs> and I might take one puff of this, and I'm I'm manic as hell. I, I told you I was gonna. I had to say that I had to come clean. <laughs> you know that's what's made me a writer is suffering from bipolar disorder, being a drunk, and having, and I'm learning in my old age an unhappy childhood. And, and man, that's a combination. You put those three together and you got it. <laughs> Thanks for putting that out there for us, Steve. <laughs> well, it's, uh, no, I had to, I wanted it for the same thing like you talk about. It's, it's, it's a wellspring that, that everybody, you reach an age where you kind of got to come clean and, you know, your motives have to be, kind of known by people you can get away with anything as long as you tell the truth about it that is uh, that is 100 percent correct the it, you know we have this term we call real guy yeah you know and of course you know some people are what i would call real guy they don't even know you know what the hell i'm talking about but one of the one of the main factors one of the probably the backbone of being a real guy is to be truthful and yeah. to be honest and not ride the wave of people's perception right but actually yeah own it if you did it own it right right and there was someone you know we're lucky in this industry because most of the people you know that that you bring up you know like frank johnson and, and tom green and, yeah. and co they were real guys that actually did it yeah but we also know the guys that got famous because of tv yeah you know and I'm glad you asked me that. I just last night I was running my sweet beaver on my seven and a half foot Kissler helium. <laughs> but you know what I mean, like, like, and then so, the, so the people that actually live it and did it and 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 never stopped doing it. You look back and you say, okay, well, this guy is a real guy. This guy was a TV celebrity who gave the perception that he was a real guy. Yeah. But you know he couldn't get a dozen baits, or you didn't pay attention where he was fishing on a weekly basis yeah. because it was irrelevant. Right. But the real guy was honest about what he would tell you or wouldn't tell you. Right. If he didn't want to tell you something, he'd straight up tell you. That's none I'm of not your damn business. You. Right. You're stealing my craft is what I'd tell him. It, I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you what size hook to use and what fly. But when, when you're following me around and I'm having to go with a canoe like this all day and, and you're trying to play catch up with me, you're stealing my art. You're stealing my craft. Right. And, and, and there's a side of that. But then also... If you're honest and you're a real guy and you look and you see the other guys are really trying and you see them out there, whether it's beach fishing or bridge oh, yeah, fishing. You, or, you go and over you, and help them. Right. Then you help them. And then you help him because there's a, you know what he's trying to do. You know that it's not the easiest thing in the world. You know that he's dedicating his time and his energy and his money. Right. And oftentimes <clears throat> his life. So then the real guy reaches out his hand yeah. and is willing to help that person, not tell him the world, not right. give him all your secrets, right? But acknowledge that that's a real absolutely. guy. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's what you want to do. The guy that got me writing was a guy named Dick Kirkpatrick, who was the founding editor of National Wildlife. And Dick had one thing he used to tell me: uh, pass it on. Right. And that's what we try to do. And. I'm at a point now, I'm not going to kid myself. I'm not going to all of a sudden find the magic bullet and I'm not going to, uh, you know, be the star of the ages or whatever. I'm working on a book of stories. It's a compendium of places I've been and some ridiculous stuff. Because let's be honest, what we really have now, um, we've got a resource in flux. It's not been real good what's happened here lately for a while. It's been very, very tough for people who have had to fish professionally. But one thing we can do is we can preserve some of these memories, nostalgia, with the idea that when young people see what we had once, that maybe this is 
recapturable that we can have this again and telling stories that motivate people because these babes that buy this book they can buy an airline ticket and they can go to where the the things are biting and it's not right. like it's not like me you know where <laughs> right. you know to me it's a drive out to griffin road or something like that right right but, well you know you know growing up and watching all the you know the what i would call the the people that i learned so much from most of the people that i learned the most from never really had to tell me much like i'll give you a good example mark croca when he used to yeah. fish canals here right um i don't know mark's probably 15 years older than me yeah. Right. So Mark's got a successful inshore business and he's fishing here in, in Broward County and through the intercoastal and he's catching the snooks and the tarpon and the jacks and and me being, you know, 10 years old watching this. Yeah. All the way up to I'm like 15, 16 years old watching this. And I can sit back and all I all I needed to know was this guy can apply himself. Make a living. Fishing. Yeah. That, to me, motivated me, taught me that, hey, Jeff, if you work hard at it, you can be like Mark Croca. He was in the same damn water as me. He's ca he was catching his bait as the same places that I was catching my bait. And to just have him lead by example meant more than anybody ever could have sat down and told me, like, secrets and tips. You know well, I mean? actually, but the other thing, the thing that's bad with guides, and I know I had to do this, and I fish, Brodsky used to take me out with him once in a while, and he had to make it, and this is carrying it one f step further, where he would have to fish, as I'm sure you do, through the client's arms. And if you know the guy's jerky and he wants to this or he wants to that, you've got to have him holding, you're trolling a live mullet, putt, putt, putt around the port, you know, hook, where, funk, you hear it, where he dips the tip, takes one step forward, one step back. No room for error, no take it out of gear, no let him run, no he jostled it. You gotta make it one stop shopping for these people because that's the thing where you or I, we pushed it further. What would happen if you let him run? Well, you'd get a dead bait back. What would happen if you this? What would happen if you that? Yeah. And we had to learn it the hard way. And of course, when we were kids and you could see it because there was so much of it. Right. You always want to let him take it, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, with snappers, that's why I was a lousy snapper fisherman. You know, let him take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if my clients realize it or not, but the circle hook. The circle hook has made their lives so much easier. Indeed it has. <laughs> Indeed it has. A, I mean, being a tarpon fisherman, uh, you know, in the old days, we'd feed the fish and try to set the hook. And yeah. that was that was an art in itself. And to think that you could take somebody brand new, some pike fisherman from Minnesota, put him on the boat and teach him how to feed a tarpon yeah, yeah, in yeah. one day. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's 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 real easy. Listen, I will tell you some stuff. Boyd told me some aphorisms. One was, what is the job of the customer? <laughs> to pick up the slack and pay the bills. <laughs> okay. And the other thing is... Why do women catch so many records? Why, Scott? Because they're not strong enough to break the line. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. But, of course, that's not true anymore. Well, I got to tell you, women, in my opinion, especially in the tarpon game, are the best students. Yeah. They, well, you know, there's not, a, there's not a big ego involved, so they listen to what you're saying. That's number one. They'll listen. Right. They'll listen to what you're saying. And then be, because, I don't know, maybe it's just not such a big deal, but they don't put so much pressure on themselves. Yeah. You know, I get these really good fishermen, you know, men that come with me. Well, I'll give you a perfect example. When I did the TV, the first time I did the TV show with Bill Dance, he went 0 for 18 on tarpon in one day. You know, not that he wasn't a good fisherman, but he would put more pressure on himself. I think Mill did something like that one time. It's just they just kept getting, coming unstuck. And I, somebody else I know, Lefty, I don't know. Now, Andy Mill went, what did he do? He blew 40. Remember that was the story, right? He blew forty. It was a horrible, and right. he, and you just get you just get sick in the mind. The only thing, the best thing to do then, is to go somewhere, have a beer or two, take the fly off, put the rod somewhere that it can't send the vibrations at you or whatever, and then get out. What I used to do when I'd get a lot of times, I'd get guys and women who just couldn't. They'd be tearing their underwear. <laughs> Come over here, and we'd go to a field where hopefully there wasn't high grass, and snip that fly off. And it was this was 
it was a little tougher with guys because their arms would be rigid and stuff like that. But to teach them how to make that lift, and it was only their elbow that slid on the shelf. And you had to be careful with girls because good touches and bad touches. And I'd <laughs> explain this with them, and I'd say, you? And it was always, I never had a problem with it. But, uh, uh, and after a while, when they did that unrolling loop of line, it'd go out there, and we, I, I made a habit to fish small flies. I used a lot of marabou. And we'd go, and we'd find a place, and I'd have a machete, and I'd chop away a little bit of maiden cane or whatever, and they could throw that thing in there, and I had them catch 15, 18 snook, and I mean, some of them, four, five, six pounds and stuff, and, and get them in, and sometimes there were ones that were just incorrigible, you couldn't do anything with, and they'd say, you, you go ahead, I'd hook it here, they'd take it, and they I just... Yeah, no, I've always found, I've always found, I mean, if... If if guys could learn something from women through fishing, I think it'd be like just cut the bullshit out, yeah. take the pressure off yourself, yeah, and just go out there and experience the day, and have let it fun. Ha, let, right, have fun. Let it come to you. Don't try to force the issue, and um, no selfies, <laughs> no selfies. I only have my cameras. I have this little flip phone, and I'm an editor. I mean, a full blown editor and an author. And this thing, I mean, I can't. It yeah, okay. Get, what's the, what's what's what, from a guy from your standpoint, older journalist, artist type? What's your take on selfies? <laughs> <laughs> they, they selfies kill. Selfies kill. Come on, explain okay. yourself. No, okay. I took Vicky and I went up to Alexander's for lunch here a couple of weeks ago. We went late, and all the millennials were not sitting there, you know. And you see them like there'll be ten of the table, and they'll be they'll be texting each other, <laughs> texting the girl, that's texting sitting from across the table, across to each the other. table. And I'm thinking, and I'm going to have some sushi, and I'm going to have this, and I'm going to have that, and we're going to have a couple of cold beers and whatever. And I want to enjoy myself, and I don't want to hear this, you know. And <laughs> see if my, <laughs> see if I got it right. Oh man, and and I don't have any tats. I don't have, I don't Nintendo to play Nintendo. I mean, I'm over it. See, I'm 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 halfway between you and the new millennial generation. I'm 51, but we got into that social media thing, call it 16, 17 years ago. Yeah, and then. I think we were one of the first ones to actually do a social media event where we invited everybody that enjoyed the social media to come and, you know, to be part of it, which we called LunkerCon, and we did it We did it downtown. Oh, wait, was that at the downtowner? Do you remember that? Well, that was, we did the one at the downtowner, but that's like our our fifth one in Fort Lauderdale. I think the first one we ever did was at 15th Street Fishery, but the first time that the selfie thing got super crazy was about five years ago we did it at Pirates Republic. Okay. And um, so everybody's coming in and it's really, I mean, the event is basically, we call it real guys hanging out with real guys because usually, you know, fishermen and like, this is a pleasure to sit down with you yeah, for I an mean, hour and to guy, talk right, right. because normally when I'd see you, you know, it'd be like, oh, there's Steve, you know, and I might give you a wave and you hey, say hi. Dude. Hey, dude, or gang signs. I don't <laughs> even know what these signs mean. So, so the whole idea of behind LunkerCon was that, you know, you just got to hang out, you know, real fishermen hang out with real fishermen. And if you weren't a pro, there was a place for you to meet the pros. And, you know, you were just kind of. Yeah, I, I loved I, I loved going in a tackle store. And, and, and this is, the see, you've seen this, I'm sure, a million times. This is usually professional people. And they would put their hands in their back pockets, both their hands in their back pockets. And they would walk up and they would always walk up behind you. And they'd say, it's the best time to fish the Tamiami Trail, the outgoing tide, which is, <laughs> I mean, that's like saying, who do you think is going to launch the next rocket? I mean, it's no, right, I mean, right. the question is so vacuous. But the reason I brought up the social media event is because that was the first time, and that, and that one was like, I don't know, six or seven years ago. That was the first time that I, I, I realized how crazy people were over selfies. Because as the crowd gathered and, and, and um, people were starting to murmur, and my wife's like, you got to go up there and say something. They came here because of, you know, your yeah. social media. So I go up uh, to the stage and I take the microphone. And I welcome everybody there. And as soon as I get up there, everybody in the whole room, the cell phones went up. Boom. 
And I never experienced that before. Dog, 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 I dog. Just, well, I was just looking at everybody's phones and the, and the selfies that were going on. And it was over and over and over again. And I'm just like, wow, this is important for these people. This day I'm telling you about, <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. This is, this is the honest to God's truth. We're going to go. It's my birthday. Right. And Vicki and I are going to go to the iPhone store. And I'm going to get the fancy one. I forget what it is. So right. I can Whatever do all this stuff. Time. So I can dial in drone strikes and do all this stuff. Okay. <laughs> and we go over there. We go over there to call Ocean Mile. What are you doing? And she's sniffing around at stuff and everything. Come on. I said, get, get your ass out of here. <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing this. <laughs> I'm not going to my grave with one of these freaking things beeping in my pocket. I promise. And we never did. Well, you know, now there's um, there's actually a backlash to the whole to the whole social media oh, thing. Oh yeah. And you know, I get it. I get it because um, well, one of the things that happens to me through social media, when we first started doing the fishing videos, you know, I was doing we were showing blue marlin, we were showing bonefish, we were showing anything in between, but it was really about the fish, you know. Yeah. And and, and what it took to to catch those fish. So at first, people would say to me, oh, Jeff, do you know Steve Kantner? Or do you know Carl Ball? Or do you know um, Ray Rocher? Or do you know, you know, and all the people that I worked hard to consider to be my peers, yeah. they would ask me about, and I liked it. Yeah. As time went on, it changed. And people said, hey, Jeff, do you know who Monster Mike is? And I knew Monster Mike because Monster Mike was trying to, you know, get his YouTube gang, his social media yeah, gang yeah, going. Probably, yeah. And we always would encourage it. So we reach out to Monster Mike. We do a small video with him, and it was it was a nice little thing. But then the next person would say, well, gee, do you know Dar Sizzle? And I'd be like, well, I know Dar Sizzle because she showed up. to." The... But it changed from being put in the category of great fishermen to being put in the category of these YouTube people. Of and visible I got, people, right? And I got A-listers. No, I got nothing against the YouTube people, yeah. but it's just hard to swallow. Like, why would you ask me that? I, I dedicated my life to catching big fish, and now you want to ask yeah. me if I know a G-stringer? Hope, homie, don't do that. So I get, you know, the disconnect. I get the dissension, but I really think that you can't, you can't hate on it. No, you, you, you can't hate on it. And I think a lot of people. It's in the rearview mirror. I mean, it's it's like any of this stuff. But I did that thing that you're talking about. I had, uh, I naturally made friends with a lot of these women's husbands, man folk or whatever, and they felt that they could talk to me eye to eye. And they would actually mention names to me, and then they'd apologize for it and say, this is none of their business. And I'd say, no, it is your business. It's your job. I'm still pretty traditional as to help protect your wife. And if you know that a particular girl is, you don't feel it's the right company, it's just like you wouldn't let your daughter run with just anybody, you put the stop to it. Right. And I know it's a woman's world and nobody does that and we don't love, honor, and obey. But <clears throat> I, would, um, I would come to some sort of a concordance with these guys when I'd say, look, <clears throat> this person has done X, X, and X. And they can't be excluded. They've actually achieved that. <clears throat> but I would always listen, and I learned a lot of stuff. And I'll tell you every last bit of it from some of these old guys that had a lot of money and everything. All the all the wisdom that came back. Uh, it made me a better person to listen to it and stuff a sock in my mouth and listen when these guys talk. Yeah. And ones with and these lovely wives. And I know a lot of these girls would absolutely. busted a diaphragm if they would have heard if we would have included and you know what i'm talking they about included yeah. the g-stringers yeah i mean don't be afraid to say it i mean yeah. it is what it is it and, is and i'm not i'm not hating on the g-stringers but i will tell you something that is not going to happen with the g-stringers or any of these not you know it doesn't just have to be g-stringers any of these social media or youtube phenoms you can get the views and the clicks but you're never going to get the respect that right. we were talking about 20 minutes ago, right? Right. You, they're never going to get that respect. And nobody's going to buy. They'll go ahead and they'll buy one of my $20 books or something like that. But they're not going to go buy a $60 book because 
unless they go ahead and buy themselves a dictionary or a thesaurus to put alongside it. And <laughs> can read, actually read it. Read the friggin' thing. <laughs> and, and, and all the good photography that went in there. I didn't shoot it. Shit, my hands shake. The other book that I just did alongside with this, I've had this coming for years. It's a result of a medicine I take. But I got a little tremor. I mean, if I drink a beer, I don't have it. But I mean, I don't want to be driving the streets to do it. I thought about that. But I had the book I did at the same time as this, I did with Stackpole Press, and it was titled um, Backcountry Flies from Swamp to Surf. And it was a 250-pager or whatever. Pat Ford helped me with some of the photos, but I largely shot them all, and I just learned to speed up my shutter speeds and get a tripod. I had a cheap tripod and shoot them outside or shoot them in the bedroom, and I went and bought a big, what do you call it, lamps, the uh, LED lamps and stuff. That, right. And uh, I learned about color temperature and all this kind of stuff. And thanks to this guy, Jay Nichols, their uh, acquisitions editor, we made a pretty good book. Of course, fly fishermen never buy anything. <laughs> well, they don't. What they do is they have they have clubs, okay? And they get their information through the clubs. No, they go in the club. Now, I can't say this about everybody, <laughs> but what they'll do is they'll buy one, and they'll have a lending library, okay? Oh, okay so okay. they bought one book, and I make $2 uh, royalty, and they'll buy the book, and they take turns checking it out. Well, I think being an author and being a fishing guide is pretty similar because you well, not that you can't become a millionaire, but let's just say that we don't necessarily expect to become a millionaire going into well, these you know, endeavors. You know, the trick of being a fisherman or a, an author and becoming a millionaire is to become a great bullshitter, I think. <laughs> well, how do you think Hemingway is so famous? He might have been the last dude that actually made some dough. <laughs> he did. And then he goes, he wins the Nobel Prize, and he said it's the worst thing that ever happened to him in his life. He used to, in fact, that remark I used, I sort of stole that. He had a biographer named Hoshner, and Hoshner comes to him and says, Hey, Ham, thinking about writing myself. What say ye? He says, well, Ham, I don't know. Writing empties a man. <laughs> and sometimes if he finds there's nothing there, comma, it kills him, period. <laughs> and he's the other, he's the one that said, what, what do you say, what do you think is necessary, the necessary components for becoming a good writer? He said, a, a not inconsiderable amount of talent. He said, a, a burning desire. Right. which I have, right. and an unhappy childhood. And he, <laughs> man, if it would have been for lithium carbonate, he'd still be here. He'd be having a drink with us today. <laughs> well, I mean, being a writer, um, it's definitely not in my DNA. And it's definitely in yours. I don't know. Dude, don't... dude, when you do it and you don't stop, and whether somebody buys your books or don't buys your books, and then you do another one. Yeah. And then you come over here with that smile on your face. I'm smiling. I'm laughing. You no, know this, what I mean? is, this is the greatest. But that's a, that's that's real life. That's good shit. How lucky are we? How these Christers would say, how blessed are we to live here? You live in this nice house. I live in a nice house. I have a pretty wife. I'm sure yours is judging from your pretty daughter. A She's family. Pretty, no, I got a hot wife. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what, and man, oh, you get my age, and that really makes a difference. Well, that's when, that's when, that's when you can really appreciate what you got. That's when you can appreciate, and, and as a result, it keeps me out of a lot of winding roads of life. It really makes a difference. You know, I, t I tell people this a lot, and um, I don't know, the, you know, the word minority gets thrown around a lot nowadays, oh. you know, minority this, minority that, but growing up, in Fort Lauderdale Beach, you are a minority. I don't care what anybody tells you. The bus that took me to school had about 30 kids on it. Yeah. Through the whole Los Olos neighborhood, there was about 30 kids that actually lived here and went to school here. Yeah. The kids that were on the beach fishing, the kids that were on the beach surfing, we knew every single kid because there wasn't that many there. No. And then we had a lifestyle between the bars and the nightlife and the way people made money and the drugs that came in here. And then the way we looked at life was totally different. And never, I never knew that until I left here and went to school at University of Connecticut. And, you know, this was pretty clean cut, though. I remember when I used to check, uh, I actually checked IDs at the Elbow Room back in the day. 
I actually had that job, not for real long. I mean, anybody could do it. I mean, you got free beer and shit like that. Right. And all this shit and overturning beer trucks and uh, the student prints. And, oh, man, I mean, that's my era. There was all kinds of shit. <laughs> Stuffing but, cops and trash cans. But you, you feel what I'm saying about being a minority by growing up here? Yeah. And we were exposed to things that nobody in the country would ever was exposed to. No, I not, and I don't mean just the fishing. I mean everything. No, we had everything, everything, it, and and you know, but you know something. If you were, if you think about it, this is this is going to really get me blackballed. But <laughs> all the all the all the little woods boogers and stuff like that. You know, when the college kids that come down here, you know, all these clean cut and football players and all this other shit, all, all these little roaches and stuff like that would crawl back under the thing for about eight, eight weeks every winter and it was safe you could take your you could take your honey for a walk down the beach it wasn't like that it got later on no man those the, hey, Fort Lauderdale Beach was so special I mean it still is but it's different I, I would get my old man up early in the morning at spring break and I mean early like you know five o'clock in the morning before the sun went up and you'd get down there nice and early and he would drive the pickup truck down A1A, and me and my buddy would pick up the beer cans and throw them in the back of the pickup truck yeah. until it was slap full. Oh yeah. And then we'd go to the we'd go to the place where they would give you I forget it was like fifteen cents a pound or whatever they yeah, give you. Yeah 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 yeah. And we'd get fifty bucks in our pocket and we'd go buy a reel or you know go sure sit on the pier for the rest of the day, and um, the whole beach smelled like beer. There was beer cans everywhere, and today. <laughs> You know, people would think that, way that was atrocious. But it wasn't atrocious. It, wasn't it was atrocious. just life, man. I remember I remember the freaking Coast Guard jetties there by Bahia Mar. Can there? you remember that? Yes, I can remember it. And I, I remember interviewing Buster Hamilton with his three-legged dog coming in Boyd one morning. And during the war years, uh, you know, over here, you know, they had boats. There was no Bahia Mar, and they used to keep the charter boats over here. Uh, Andrews and, and New River. In fact, Carl Ball's uncle used to have one there. And that's those Quonset huts there, those were fish processing plants. And, and that was what years? That was up until 1950. Okay, so in the 40s. Yeah, and 50s. during the Second World War, what they do, nobody had hooks. There was no bait industry. They used to get they, the hooks, the only place you'd get them was from old Oslo and Son in whatever uh, Norway. Okay, and of course, Norway was completely cordoned off, you know, by the Allies. Uh, the Germans were fighting, trying to keep uh, the, they were fighting the Germans in the mountains and stuff, so you couldn't get hooks. So these guys were taking apart plugs. Guys like, I think this is before Wittenborn's time, but I remember some of these guys, and they'd take a piece of, like, broom handle or lemonwood shovel handle, and they'd trim it on a bevel, and they drill a hole through it on a drill press, and they paint it some crazy color, yellow with green stripes and stuff. And they take a, this piece of coat hanger wire, and they'd wrap a 9674 Mustad or something on the back of it. And they troll these things on sash lines. Wait a minute, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to make a have a reentry problem here if I pull this <laughs> off my head. But anyway, we do this, and <clears throat> and they'd go out there and they'd hand jerk, and they'd take these fish, of course, and they'd drive through the Coast Guard Inlet over. This is, uh, I think this is around the time that they dug Port Everglades, and they'd take them back over here to in town where the was a railhead, and the freight cars would unload, and they'd have 200,000 pounds of kingfish, which they'd blow up the coast up to Fulton's in New York where they'd get shipped overseas. Well, I remember Hamilton telling me in the years he did this, there were probably three or four times. I figured that whole Las Olas thing there was a basin in there. It was a big grass bed. They had cobies would come in there and stuff. But he said, I'll bet you in the six or seven years we did it, he said, I'll bet you I personally caught five or six kingfish over 50 pounds in there on these lures <laughs> now those little rocks that are sitting down there by Bahia Mar is that really a remnants yeah you is bet it? your sweet ass it is, is absolutely it really? yeah. we've debated that over the years and oh I'm... no no they used to have an inlet there and the other thing I remember going down there for fourth of July and stuff and it was always the same and they have those I don't know if they still have them, but they have those like brazier you know where they have the and you put your charcoal in those grills and yeah they're stuff still down there and all of a sudden you'd hear every it'd be without a failure It'd be some kid that ran into one of them and tattooed them. Oh, oh man, that was now those those that little set of rocks down there, Bahiamar. I lived at as a teenager, or as younger than a teenager. I mean, our uh, 
my best friend's mom, God, she was great. She had an old Alfa Romeo, and she would go by Roy's Bait and Tackle and get the shrimps. I remember Roy's. And um, we had two two lures we used back then. We had a little tiny yellow bucktail jig, and we used the reflecto spoon. Yep. And the reflecto spoon had that little yellow um, feather out the back. Yep, yep. So you never knew what the hell you were going to catch on it. You'd catch a pompano one cast on it. Oh, that's a, a popular sm- lure at Chuckalusky, yeah. They still use it in Chuckalusky? Yeah, I think they do. Because that reflect, man, that was that was the thing but we would go down there and every morning the sun would come up um it didn't matter what time of year it was sometimes the snooks were down there sometimes the pompanos were down there the amount of bonefish we caught down there was oh yeah a lot and um that was just a place for us and by bicycle i was about 10 blocks from my house yeah we you know we had stuff in Wilton Manors up here. There were things. I have guys that I know that I don't think are bullshitters that tell me, like over by the one Catholic church about in the, uh, the North Fork of the New River or the Middle River, actually catching uh, in several years of living in Wilton Manors before it, uh, well, in its prior incarnation, <laughs> catching three Spanish mackerel there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was a, I mean, I, I, I can only remember what I can remember. Most of the stuff, you know, that, that I did was in the 80s. Yeah, for me, it was, I, we came down here in 54, and I remember the first thing, <clears throat> I, somebody in the neighborhood uh, <clears throat> took me to Anglin's Pier. I remember there was this girl that lived down at the end of the street. Her grandfather, old Pop Higgins, uh, he used to open close the pier, and he'd take us out there. I forget uh, who, and there was a, his son or whatever. But I remember watching... Uh, guys who later became my friends land a big nurse shark. I mean, a big one, like 450. And they used a lemon wood shovel handle. And for a tip, what they did is they took a CO2 cartridge and sawed it off, and they brazed a roller tip on there. <laughs> and they wrapped the guides on with 72-thread green nylon, and they used hose clamps to put it on there. I mean, the rod would bend. I mean, it was absolutely, it was like a davit. It didn't bend at all. <laughs> right, of a winch. And, and we used to go up to Hillsborough Inlet, and we'd get those guys. I knew Doug Guy, his kid went to school. Judy Guy went to school with me. And when I got old enough that I could get away with it, we'd sneak in the wharf, and Pete Philly, pumping Pete and I, we'd get up there, and we'd buy these captains, uh, you know, a couple of toddies. That was the wharf. That was the yard arm. Was The yard arm was up there by... by and these guys would go and they'd save us a couple of bonitas and stuff like that on their boat. And we'd throw them, we'd take them down. And we used to fish off the beach for sharks when you used to be able to get across, across Wahoo Bay up there. At, uh, man, that's, that's old school, Steve. That's old school. No, man, this is before the birth of the earth. I'm telling you. No, man. that really is. And the, other thing that, the other thing that's always floored me about growing up here was being, you know, where your life revolved around fishing in the ocean it broke all barriers and what i mean by that is some of the people you fish with were multi-millionaires right you know the t- on the top of the world but then again you were also friends with the guys that had nothing they would fish out of the back of their cars right right and anywhere in between but because you were into fishing it was the great leveler it was it i mean presidents and 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 felons together right it, it put everybody together it put everybody in the same i don't want to say same playing field but you, you you never thought like that guy didn't belong or you didn't belong yeah. dude you guys just well, went well, fishing you know guys have like these intersecting circles i mean it's girls it's like you know the 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 what do you call it vassar grads or something like that you know like oh Oh, God, sorry we missed you. We'll catch you in San Tropez this year. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> but but guys, I mean, we have guys that like, say, want to watch football with us. We have guys that want to watch whatever. There's guys we want to watch Tarsisle. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of groups of guys. Yeah, now the, it, 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 it's a funny place. We always, you know, it was, you, you just never knew where the next guy was coming from who he was going to be he might be the president's son he might be you know somebody that oh we had some bartenders kid who knows anywhere in between and it was just it's just such a great man we had we had we had doozies there were there were some that were a little uh, on the darker side of things but you know that's that's the one thing when i i wrote a little copy for this little pre-press for this book and i said you know this book basically women from every conceivable social and educational strata 
I mean, some of these girls didn't have a pot. Some of these girls, the first thing they ever caught was a sandworm. Pardon me with her. <clears throat> Pardon me, but but some of these girls. Um, oh Christ, I can't remember the names of the <laughs> colleges. Girls that wouldn't give me a second look, probably, uh, you know, at that age. But uh, it's when that's what they like. It's we're going to wrap this up in a few minutes. But before we do, um, when I called you on the phone to come over here, and um, you know, you were awfully nice about it and everything. But you said something to me that has been in my my mind uh, since, and you told me that. In all your life work with being an author and teaching people to fish, and you said it's in the last few years, you're getting just more phone calls than you ever have, and that you're getting recognized more than you've ever been, and you have like a lifetime worth of achievements that are actually coming to tuition. After for 40 some? years of begging and scraping, I'm an overnight success. Yeah, that's what you told me. <laughs> Can you elaborate just a little yeah, bit? Yeah, it's, it's what I said before. I think what I did is I pulled out the stops. I figure I is what I is. And I think that it's by exactly what you've been reiterating. It's about telling the truth. Hemingway used to call making it one true sentence. And if people realize me the way I am, and I'm not comporting myself according to I don't have Miss Wiki Bicky here with a switch or whatever and I'm telling the story and on the one hand I don't feel that I'm qualified to instruct anyone how to write there is a man named uh, uh, William Zinzer who writes a book titled On Writing Well and anyone who would wish to pursue this as a craft uh, you can probably get that for 10 bucks or less from whatever but the other stuff is, is really letting it go. And we live in this age, we terms like fake news and all this other stuff. And I mean, how can people live with this? I mean, it is what it is. I mean, it there is. are certain immutable laws of nature. And I mean, I told the one, <laughs> I thought your earphones were gonna blow up, but I said, what's the secret to my success? I wouldn't call myself a, I'm at least a functional alcoholic, if anything else. I like drinking wine at night. I suffer from bipolar disorder and I take the medicine. And as I look back, maybe there were parts of my life that weren't happy, but it wasn't bothering me then. And I always got along with people. And the other thing with this stuff is I, I've got a weakness. For, I mean, I love my wife and I try to keep it, you know, within the bounds, but <laughs> I, I have a weakness for that, uh, for the leg. Yeah, that's, you got a weakness for women. Imagine that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, these guys, I mean, I don't care if it's toxic or whatever. Give me another shot, you know. Steve, I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming over and doing the oh, podcast with you. me. And I just want to thank you for being a real guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because there's not too many people. Okay, what am I looking at here? I gotta okay. put my glasses on. Again. Tell them, tell them, or I can tell them right here. The only way to get fifty women, do not look for it at the borders or anywhere else or on Amazon. The only way you can get it is to order it from Tom Pero, the publisher. The way you do it is simply Google the phrase "Why Women Fish." Dot com and you'll get the coolest website and it'll let you do stuff or also you can google wildriverpress.com and speak to Pero. Okay. It's what we did here is basically a three-man operation or four. I mean, Pero, uh, the, uh, the, the guy who basically the layout guy, me and Pero has, uh, well, his girlfriend, I mean, they take the orders, but these books are shipped directly. These are heavy card stock. It's a $60 book. It's not, you know, but, not for the faint hearted. But yeah, if you got a few bucks and um, you want to, if you want to read stuff from a real guy, what I did today is I just Googled Steve Kantner. And um, when I did that, I found the book and I read a little bit about the book and I knew that that was the last one that you, you know, uh, published. Yeah. And, um, it was pretty simple to, to do it. I, I'm glad you wrote the book because, um, like I said, those G-stringers have kind of 
yeah. murkied the water, especially for the young. Now, of course, I had to do a lot of research on that. I had to, uh, on how, how murky the water was, I had to look at that before we made our selection. It was very, <laughs> well, very important. Well, the, uh, the, there's, a, you know, there's a local, uh, there's a local woman in town that I've, I've reached out, um, and I think she's going to do a podcast with her. I don't know if you've met her before, but it's uh, Sandra McMillan. Do you know who that is? Yes, I know who she is. I do not know her. I, I've been watching her for a long time, and she's got a boat that it just. It's a big Spencer. Right. And it's just, dude, it's nice. Yeah. And like, yeah. Like, I, I, I should remember the Billfish Foundation. Yeah. 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 I, well, I grew up in the, you know, my dad built the custom boats and I've always been a big fan of that. So the first thing um, I recognized was the boat. And then I learned a lot about Sandra. And I learned that, you know, she's basically dedicated a good part of her, you know, adult life into fishing for sailfish and being competitive in the sailfish series. And I, I just, you know, I, I just like that so much because she's actually a real woman doing real things and cares about the fishery and whatever comes across her plate or whatever, she prioritizes everything in her life around that. And that's real guy stuff. Yeah. And she's right here. She's right down the street. And no one knows who the hell she is unless you're in the billfish scene. She's not a G-stringer. She's a mom. She's got a bunch of kids. She's did a great job with the kids. I followed her through social media. I can't wait to get her in here. And um, I got a feeling she's going to like the book. I got a feeling she's going to like the book. So anyway, Steve. Well, let's, uh, we, let, let me say, if, if, if things really work out and we do a sequel, maybe we can get her in there. Well, whether you can get her in there or not, I mean, she knows, you know, the value yeah. of what you wrote about, if anybody. I mean, you know. And, you know, you don't have to get everybody in the book, but it's just good that you wrote that stuff. Make people realize that, hey, you know, they're real sportswomen. Yeah, and um, they'll, they'll compete with the best of us. Mia Hamm, 20 years ago, who knew? <laughs> Barbara Kersey Joyner, who knew? Chrissy Everett, who knew? Well, who know, cared? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing. And, um, and you hit it right on the head with the book. So congratulations on that. I hope Thanks. it's a hope it's a great seller for you. Me too. Um, it's impressive. It's a hardcover. Um, you don't see, you know, three hundred fourteen pages. I think uh, two hundred and some uh, full color, big illustrations. No, so no. He, he he put the real work and effort into it. This isn't one of like the new eBooks or whatever. Um, <laughs> It's, you know, it, it's a quality piece. And uh, Steve, thanks so much for being part of the Real Guy Network. Whether you know it or not, you've been in the network for a long time. Okay. Um, you were in the Real Guy Network, and people got to know about you when we won that small battle at the beach. And um, I'm glad you're in the network. And thanks for coming hey, over bud. and Thank spending you for some time me. with us. That was, was terrific. Great podcast, Good. pal.